Hey, guess what, Rebecca? Oh, I don't know. This is this is very open. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know. What? Tell me. It could be anything, but it is, in fact, that we have launched a special subscription offer for the listeners of the Third Sector podcast. Ooh, that's nice. It is nice. I like it a lot. So listeners mm. <laughs> who sign up to Third Sector's The Information Package can now get 50% off the first three months of their subscription when they pay by quarterly direct debit. All they need to do is go to www.thirdsector.co.uk forward slash podcast 50 to get involved. And when you do that, you will gain access to our brilliant magazine, unlimited news stories, high value sector analysis, and of course, lots more views and opinions from myself and yourself. Which, you know, if you're listening to the Third Sector podcast, clearly you're not adverse to. You're, you're OK with it at the very <laughs> least, if not actively enjoying it. Uh, so where do they need to go to get that again? Oh, thank you so much for asking, Rebecca. Um, they need to go to www thirdsector.co.uk forward slash podcast 50 to sign up today. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week, we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week, we're discussing what charities can be doing to help in the fight against climate change. But first, it's good to be back. Um, I hear I'm in danger of losing my job to Stephen. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, and his and his dulcet tones. Very dulcet. No, we missed you very much last week. It's good to have you back, though. <laughs> that's what I need. That, that's what my ego needed. That was it. <laughs> Uh, did you have a good week off? I did, yes. I did. Wonderful. Um, Great. Well, we are, yeah, so we're going to talk about climate change this week. It's one of the biggest challenges of our time, so we're probably not going to be able to cover it all neatly off in the space of one half hour podcast, but we're going to take a crack at what charities can be doing and some of the moves that big organisations are making right now to uh, address the climate crisis. And after we've stretched your brains, as ever, we will have our coronavirus care package to cheer everybody up. The best climate news I heard recently, or certainly the most interesting bit of climate news I heard recently, was that there's a London-based car company called Heatherwick Studio, which has just announced proposals for an electric car that hoovers up pollution from other vehicles while it's driving around. Um, I just thought it was really cool. It, this car uses a very powerful internal filtering system to suck in pollutants and filter them through this mesh system, um, which is actually already in use in, in aircraft cabins. And then they just put the cleaned air back out into it and it's designed by the gate same um person who uh designed the london route master bus back in 2011 or 2012 i think that's amazing so in my head i'm picturing you know i think it's because you said hoover but you know like i've gone via henry hoover the hoovers with the little faces on nice to, do you remember the kids um tv show brum that was a little car with a face going I around do. birmingham that's what i'm picturing nice uh <laughs> well the um, designer of this car was actually on the radio yesterday selling it and talking about the filtration system but you could just hear him getting super overexcited uh, as he was describing this car and at the point at which he went and the car could have french doors the interviewer just went and that's all we've got time for and cut him <laughs> off <laughs> um, so there are designs actually out there on the web right now but i i love the idea of uh, a hoovering car with french doors very much I looking forward to seeing those on the road in a couple of years but in the meantime let's talk about what's going on in the charity sector with the climate crisis <laughs> 
Last week, the charity leader's body, Akivo, released a statement saying that as the sector commits to building back better from the COVID-19 pandemic, there's an opportunity to give the global climate crisis the urgent attention it deserves. The umbrella body is calling for leaders to commit to a series of principles in pursuing climate justice built around three A's. These are acknowledgement, ambition and action. They were devised by Akivo's Climate Crisis Member Working Group, and principles include a commitment to net zero emissions and using communication platforms to support campaigners who are asking policymakers for change. The principles provide a shared commitment for leaders to acknowledge the scale of the climate crisis and to be ambitious in their pursuit of climate justice, both as the heads of individual organisations and as a collective voice for civil society. So it really does seem that the whole conversation about climate change is heating up. Stop it. That's got, that got the silence it deserved uh, and I shall move on with my day. The launch of these principles coincided with another body, the Association of Charitable Foundations, publishing its first annual progress report from signatories to its funder commitment on climate change. The commitment was launched in November 2019 and has been overseen by the ACF since June last year. Right, and so this funder commitment on climate change includes six pledges. Um, These include working with existing programmes that positively address climate change, addressing the risk of climate change investments, which I think is a really interesting one for organisations that do have investment portfolios. We have seen in the past charities investing in things like gas and oil, and over the years that's become an increasingly muddy area for them. Um, And they also have to pledge to improve the charity's carbon footprint. Signatories are expected to report annually on the progress of these goals. And so far, 60 organisations have backed the commitment. Now, at the end of last year, there were only 50 signatories, but this still accounted for an estimated total annual giving of £351 million and total assets of £4.7 billion. So that is not an insubstantial amount of money by any stretch. Last week's report from the ACF included feedback from 44 charities which have been involved with the commitment for a year or more. Um, And the findings were very interesting. They found that most progress had been made in committing resources to accelerate work that addresses the causes and the impacts of climate change. By contrast, integrating climate commitments into other work and decarbonising operations showed the least amount of progress, which didn't really surprise me. I expect that's probably one of the trickier elements of this pledge to fulfil. And of course, the report notes that the ability of funders to commit funds to tackling climate change has been quite severely hampered by the financial impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on their own organisations and resources. So progress is being made in this area, but it is happening slowly. Absolutely. And I do think it's worth pointing out that many development and humanitarian charities have been at the forefront of working to achieve the UN's sustainable development goals. But I do think in the past there's been some hesitancy around this issue for charities whose purposes are not explicitly focused on the environment and climate change. And and to an extent, that's understandable. Charities are often dealing with massive existential problems that require their full focus. And obviously there's a worry about mission creep, that they'll sort of start taking on stuff that's outside their remit, stretch their resources even more and end up doing none of it well. Um, Seb Ellsworthy, the chief executive of the social investment charity Access, wrote a blog for us in March last year where he talked about being at a conference with other funders. And 45 minutes into the session, someone asked why no one had mentioned climate change. And he said many of the funders were a little defensive in responding, arguing that without a mandate as an environmental funder, this wasn't really something they could do. This wasn't their job. Interesting. Yeah. Um, But he says in follow-up conversations and further reflection, he came to the conclusion that climate change is going to affect every community over the decades ahead. And responding to it requires a complete overhaul of the economy. And funders have to consider that there will be consequences for the area of social change in which they work. And they have to think about how it will affect the resilience of the charities and social enterprises that they support. 
And I do think that's true for the wider charity sector as well. Just the past year has shown us that people who are already struggling are the ones who are going to be hit hardest by any major upheaval or crisis. Mm. So even if your charity doesn't work in the environmental field, it's really likely that the people you serve are going to be affected. Absolutely. And climate change is, you know, front and centre, at least in principle, if not in practice right now, of so many big agendas around the world. I think we're in a place where we're seeing lots of people making commitments. Are they taking action as much as they could? Perhaps not. But we're seeing governments having conversations about climate change. And we're also starting to see big private companies making commitments on climate change, too. So Amazon, for example, has pledged to go carbon neutral by 2040, which is a decade ahead of the Paris Agreement on climate change. The shipping company Mesk is also aiming for net zero emissions by 2050. And Nestle did commit to using 100% responsibly sourced palm oil by 2020, which was last year. Mm. So obviously the charity sector doesn't have the same carbon footprint as, you know, industries like shipping or aviation or any number of carbon intensive industries. And I also can't speak about climate change without mentioning the mind bending fact that the richest 1% of the world's population account for 15% of global emissions, according to a recent report from the UN. That is, yeah. So in, in some ways, you know, when I every time I think about that fact, I feel kind of defeated about, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of individuals are all doing their recycling and all the rest of it um, and, and doing what they can. But the reality is there's just a tiny proportion of people who need to change their behaviours. And without that, it's hard, hard to make progress. And I do think that's where organisations come in, right? That I just, you know, as as an individual, it is so hard to feel you are you are making any progress. But if big organizations, big companies, you know, big bodies are able to start making some progress, that's going to have a much bigger dent. And even if you're not in the richest 1% of the world's population, the reality is if you are an organisation operating in the modern world, your activities are going to be contributing to this issue. Um, charity tech guru Zoe Amar mentioned in a column last year that data centres, for example, which power everything from your email inbox to streaming Netflix, are forecast to consume 8% of the world's electricity by 2030. And one 2019 report claimed that online video streaming creates as much greenhouse gas as the annual emissions of Spain. Yeah, can we just stop for a second and talk about how mind-blowing that is? Like, that's a report from 2019. So before we were sat in the house with nothing else to do but binge-watch documentaries about dodgy zookeepers. Ah, uh, yeah. Right? Like, I, I kind of assumed hiding under my duvet watching Bridgerton was one of the most environmentally friendly ways I could spend my lockdown Saturdays. But no, nope, apparently not. I think you're probably offsetting. I think that's the way to think about this. <laughs> you know, you're offsetting by not commuting to work. Um, you're offsetting by... All the things that we're not doing at the moment. I mean, we're not travelling, we're not going anywhere, are we? So All the plants I've bought during lockdown and then allowed to die while I, you know, <laughs> yeah. while I watch them and go, I wonder, I wonder what it is you need. Could it be water? Who knows? <laughs> so um, what is it that charities can actually do to do their part in this global struggle against climate change? Akivo's pledge calls for charity leaders and, by extension, charities to recognise and acknowledge that climate, extinction and biodiversity crises are systemic and advancing threats to the sector's ability to create the impact it seeks. These threats have already disproportionately affected certain groups, both in the UK and globally, and they will continue to do so. Signatories must also promise to champion ambitious leadership on climate justice within the voluntary sector specifically and work towards a just transition to net zero emissions strategizing and acting now to support a transition that will help protect the communities and places charities work with from further harm. 
Leaders must commit to sharing and learning alongside peers in the sector and to speaking publicly and confidently about the climate, using personal and organisational communications platforms to support campaigns, asking policymakers to make that change. So on this note, uh, Sue Mae Thompson, who's the chief exec of the Media Trust, wrote a really good blog on this for us a couple of months back, in which she laid out some of the things charities need to consider when they're trying to shape the dialogue and have this conversation around climate change. Her top tips were to keep the message simple, clear and consistent, and to emphasise that the important question is when and not if. She also said to connect with people from a range of different political viewpoints and to make an emotional argument that relies on people and stories rather than graphs and data. And she said collaboration is going to be key, which goes back to Akivo's point about sharing experiences and learning. She said tackling the climate crisis will require a sustained sector-wide commitment to and willingness to embrace more joined up messaging and collective action. And she says the sector will also need to look outside itself to engage with media industry partners and to ensure that it's leveraging the latest techniques around behavioural science and nudge theory to drive positive changes in attitudes and behaviours. So again, the whole thing is about collaboration and not just with other charities. And again, that's something I think that the sector is probably in a much better position to get on and do post-pandemic because we really have seen this incredible collaboration over the last year or so. Absolutely. And as well as providing commitments for leaders, Akivo's pledge also identifies key action that charities themselves can take to understand their emissions and to think about how climate change will affect their overall mission in the long term. So these include everything from measuring the carbon footprint of your operations and service delivery and then making a plan publicly to reduce these uh, and encouraging charities to regularly consider realistic targets for a transition to net zero emissions. Charities are also being encouraged to explore the explicit and implicit intersections between their mission and climate justice, and to use this to inform the choices that they make about strategy, services, contracts, communications and campaigns. And the pledge also says that trustees should be involved in this and they should be regularly updated on the progress that's being made within the organisations. And I feel that is something we hear a lot, actually, you know, once you have buy-in from the board, taking on massive changes of strategy or just, you know, a new focus or an increased focus is much easier once the board's involved. Absolutely. This pledge also calls for leaders to ask questions of suppliers and partners, including investment managers and pension providers where relevant, to make clear the organisation's commitment to using the most sustainable providers possible, even changing suppliers where appropriate. And this is an interesting one because, um, as you mentioned early on, actually, Emily, we have seen charities divest from fossil fuels in the recent past. In September 2019, Comic Relief adopted a policy that trustees would, quote, not sanction an investment in companies whose primary business is the extraction of man- or manufacture of fossil fuels. And the National Trust, I know, has also done something similar. And traditionally, doing this meant risking taking a bit of a hit financially. Because obviously, you know, fossil fuels, you know, for a long time, everybody's been using oil, everybody's been using coal. It's actually been a really sure thing in terms of your investments. Um But as this divestment movement has picked up pace, the financial services industry has reacted by introducing more high quality investment funds that do avoid fossil fuels. So the hope is that charities will no longer have to compromise on profit, which is important with investments because the more money you have, the more money you can spend on furthering your charitable cause. Mm -hmm. And this can have real reputational perks as well. Um, When I was looking into the comic relief story last year, um, I spoke to Lily Thompson, who's the head of networks at the responsible investment charity Share Action. And she told me that charities are increasingly deciding that there is a reputational risk in being seen to do nothing or to be actively investing in fossil fuels. And that's something Comic Relief, they got into a bit of trouble around sort of a few years ago because it turns out they were investing in alcohol and tobacco and you know people weren't that comfortable with it. And that actually gave them this opportunity to look and think and you know, 
how do we want to be investing? Um, and just this week, we've had a report by the think tank, the Beacon Collaborative, which warned that charities risk missing out on a share of the trillions of pounds of inherited wealth from millennials unless they find targeted ways to connect with them. So the theory here is that as baby boomers age and die, millennials are set to inherit their wealth. But because so much of the focus has been on Dorothy Donor, who was this archetypal, typical baby boomer age donor that charities were gearing their fundraising around, charities haven't really worked out how to connect with millennials in the same way. Um, And we've definitely talked um, about the difficulty in engaging with Gen Z on the podcast before as well. Um, And we know that these two groups, millennials and Gen Z, are explicitly interested in climate change and activism. We saw the response that Extinction Rebellion got the year before last. Young people are concerned and they want to see action on that. Absolutely. And for them, seeing that charities are quite literally putting their money where their mouths are, as well as taking other steps to deal with climate change and its effects, can only be a good thing in terms of attracting support from these younger generations. You're absolutely right. And and it may also be that in doing some of this work to assess carbon emissions and energy consumption, charities find solutions that are good for the environment and can also save money at the same time, such as insulating older buildings to make them more heat effective. So far, 12 organisations have signed the Akivo pledge, and it would be absolutely great to see more doing so. Um, I think we're all aware that climate change is a huge existential issue uh, and it can be very, very difficult for individuals to feel like they can make any sort of difference, as I was saying earlier on. But I think it is really heartening to see that charities are actively engaging and thinking about what this impact is going to be for those that they work with and what they can do as part of their mission to actually make that world, the only one we have at the moment, a better place. Absolutely. And if your organisation is doing some good green work that you're really proud of, please do get in touch and let us know and we'll feature it in our coronavirus care package in an upcoming episode. We'd really love to hear about that. Each week we bring you a mini coronavirus care package, a good news story we've spotted in the sector. So Rebecca, what do you have for us this week? I am really excited about this story. Uh, So this story is uh, the story of a mobile library operating in Balochistan, which is one of the most remote and impoverished regions of Pakistan. Uh, All of the schools have been closed due to COVID and there are no traditional libraries. And even before COVID, the region had a 24% female literacy rate, which is one of the lowest in the world, uh, compared with a male literacy rate of 56% and the highest percentage of children out of school in the country. So this mobile library has been introduced. I love it. But there's a twist. This mobile library operates not from a bus, but on the back of a camel named Roshan. Roshan. Roshan, the camel. Roshan, the camel library. Um, and yeah, he's got, uh, I will put pictures of this in the show notes. Uh, it's on the, I, I got the story from the Guardian. Uh, and it's literally just over his hump. He's got all of these books in pockets. He's got like this kind of, this yeah, this piece of cloth draped with pockets and all of these books tucked into it. Um, and, I love this. Yes. And there's like, this lovely picture of him lying down and all the children around him taking books out of the pockets. It's amazing. Um, so he visits four villages in the region, allowing children to read and swap books, all of which have been provided by the Alif Layla Book Bus Society in Lahore, which operates mobile rickshaw libraries in the city. So the idea was a brainchild of two women in Mand in Balochistan, uh, Zubaydah Jalal, the, who is a federal minister in the Pakistan government, and her sister Rahima Jalal, who's a head teacher of a local high school. They had heard about them being used in uh, they had heard about camels being used in Mongolia and Ethiopia and thought it would work in the dry, rough terrain of this part of Pakistan. 
Um, and the pilot has been such a success that the project is going to carry on for at least another three months. And they've launched another library in Gwadar in Balochistan with a camel called Chirag. I can't wait to see these pictures. I'm going to have to go and look at them the minute we have finished with this episode. They're so lovely. They're so lovely. And yeah, obviously, you know, I don't want to romanticise this too much. Like, it would be great if there were more public libraries and, you know more school access and a higher female literacy rate in this area but you know in these dire straits when there's really you know the schools are closed anyway having this camel coming around they have some lovely kind of interviews with some of the people who are sort of hosting Rashan the camel sort of in their kind of compound when he comes through their villages um, and sort of seeing the impact it's having on the children um, and yeah it's just just seems like a really really lovely idea um, so yeah so that is your, your bit of good news and as I say we'll put a link in the show notes because these photos are worth seeing So that is all from us this episode. We'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We will see you next week. Listener.